Uh, We'll also be going back eventually to the passage in Luke's Gospel uh, that we read, but we'll spend most of our time uh, here in James chapter 2, continuing our series this morning, Love Your Church. And our theme for this morning, as as we think of, of that series, Love Your Church, is the theme of welcoming, welcoming. In recent years, there have been a number of videos, maybe produced by TV shows, by some of the, the chat shows in America or in the UK. Uh, and one of the things that they sometimes do is they like to take a celebrity and disguise that celebrity. And then maybe have them walk down a busy street or have them try to strike up conversation with ordinary passers-by uh, and see whether ordinary people will be willing to stop to talk to what they think is a stranger in the street. And then the contrast comes, of course, when the celebrity takes off their disguise and the passers-by on the street realize who they really are, and all of a sudden the crowds come running and want to listen to every word that the celebrity has to say and maybe get their picture taken with them and so forth. And while those videos can be, to some extent, entertaining, Uh, They also expose to us, don't they? They expose the shallowness uh, of the face value culture that we live in. Uh, People will spend huge sums of money just to get close to celebrity heroes of theirs, whether it's footballers or actors and actresses, TV personalities, whoever they are. Those people are deemed worthy of time and interest and in some cases, you would have to say idolatrous worship because of how they look or what they've achieved or what they've done. Others are deemed not important enough at all for us to speak two words to them. A face value culture. But it would be very naive. In fact, it would be just plain dishonest if we acted as though this is just something that happens out there in the world and doesn't often sometimes also happen inside the church. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, he deals with this issue of a face-value culture in the church. He deals with it head-on here in his letter. Look at James chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My brothers, show no partiality. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The word there for partiality, it could also be translated favoritism. It comes from a Greek word that means receiving the face, receiving the face. In other words, making judgments about people based on their appearance. The point James wants to make in dealing with this issue is very simple. Faith in Jesus and favoritism in the church should not mix. Faith in Jesus and favoritism in the church should not mix. The church of Jesus Christ, as we thought about last week, is a family, a family in which people of all ages, backgrounds, skin colors, and languages are to be welcomed in. It's a family formed by the gracious love of God through Jesus Christ, not based on anything that any of us have merited or achieved. And that being the case, friends, there are absolutely no grounds for favoritism in God's family. And yet the sad truth is that even Christians do tend to play favorites. 
James describes a, a pretty obvious and public example of that here in chapter 2, which we'll come to in a moment, where a rich man and a homeless man both turn up at a Christian worship gathering and they get completely different treatment. But favoritism in the church can sometimes be more subtle than that. We maybe even sometimes don't realize that we're doing it. Perhaps week after week, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, we speak to some churchgoers, but never to others. Or we make assumptions in our minds about strangers who turn up at church purely because of what they're wearing or the piercings, hairstyles, tattoos, whatever it may be. And even if we don't act on it, we've made judgments, distinctions in our minds about whether they fit or whether they don't, whether we want them here or whether really we don't. This is not a small problem. This is not some little sin that the preacher needn't waste a whole sermon talking about. Here's a sizable section of James's letter, a portion of God's word warning us about this issue. We have a gospel of grace to proclaim. We don't want to contradict that gospel of grace by not showing the same welcome to all people regardless of who they may be. And so as we work through this passage in James, we'll think in more negative terms about what we should not be doing. And then we'll turn to the, the passage and look and think more about what we should be doing if we want to be a welcoming church. And so uh, our first broad point uh, of today uh, from the passage in James, we should be ready to welcome anyone into God's house. We should be ready to welcome anyone into God's house, the church. The scene that James describes for us here is, is fairly clearly a public worship service. Notice that word assembly in verse 2. And it's a worship service at which heads turn not once but twice. Two visitors have turned up to worship. And they could not be more different from each other. Verse 2. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. The word there for fine clothing is very rare in the New Testament. It's actually used a couple of times to describe the appearance of angels and even to describe the appearance of Jesus at the transfiguration that he was changed into this glorious appearance. And so James is maybe using a bit of hyperbole here. He's saying that someone with, you know, heavenly clothing comes into the worship service. And then this other man comes in and the ESV translation says he's wearing shabby clothing. And that's a bit of an understatement in the translation. The language means a man in stinking rags. A man who looks as if he's been living rough on the street. But look at the treatment that each man receives or the concern that James would have about the treatment they would receive. Verse 3. The rich man is given the best seat in the house. The poor man is shunted off down to the back or out of sight, if not out of mind. And James says, if that's how you treat them, verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James says this is an evil thing to do. There's a difference between making judgments and being judgmental. Some, some people always, you know, the criticism of Christians is they're so judgmental. Well, 
we all make judgments, Christian or non-Christian. We make judgments about all kinds of things. But to be judgmental is to have a constantly critical attitude. It's looking at people and thinking, well, they, they don't measure up to my standards, regardless of uh, the fact that God is judge of all of us. We, we assume that people aren't measuring up to our standards. And James gives at least four reasons why that very wicked, sinful attitude, that favoritism, should have no place in the Christian church. First of all, because favoritism doesn't reflect Christ's glory. Favoritism doesn't reflect Christ's glory. Look at verse 1 again. My brothers, show no partiality or favoritism as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Or it could also be translated, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only place in the whole New Testament that the word glory is attached to the title, the Lord Jesus Christ, like this. And as we thought a few weeks ago in our communion season, the word glory is all to do with a sense of weightiness or worthiness or importance or awesomeness, you might say. And what James is saying here, friends, is that distinguishing between human beings is pointless because every human being fades into insignificance compared to the glory, the worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just silly. It's, it's ridiculous to fall over ourselves over a rich person or a famous person coming into our midst when in fact we're met together to worship the glorious Lord Jesus Christ who is so far above and beyond the best of us. Imagine you're down in Newcastle for the day with your family or a group of friends and some of you decide you're going to spend the day on the beach or walking the prom and the rest of you decide you're going to climb Sleeve Donard. And the ones that climb, climb Sleeve Donard, when they get to the top, all being well, will be 850 metres above the ones that are down on the beach or the prom. And maybe when you get to the top, you look down and, and you think, you know, somewhere down there is the rest of the family or friends. Look how much higher up we are than them. Well, you might be a lot higher up than them, but the fact is that all of you are still millions of miles from the sun. And likewise, when we start tripping over ourselves because some millionaire is in our presence, he's a beggar compared to the riches of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or if some highly accomplished businessman is part of our church, his work fades into insignificance compared to the work of salvation accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. Or someone with all the respect in the world, someone who is just loved and adored by so many more people that, that love and adore us, what the love and adoration they receive is a drop in a bucket compared to the love and adoration that Jesus Christ is rightly receiving today in heaven and on the earth. Friends, no human being comes close to matching the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tony Moretta says, if you are captivated by Jesus' glory, then you won't fawn over rich people or any type of people. If you're captivated by Jesus' glory, you won't fawn over other people. When you're tempted to compare yourself to some gleaming celebrity or the person in the next pew, 
None of us compare to the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, so why bother comparing ourselves with one another? Favoritism doesn't reflect Christ's glory. But then also favoritism, another reason we shouldn't have favoritism in the church is because it doesn't reflect God's grace. Favoritism doesn't reflect God's grace. What a complete contradiction it would be for a visitor to come to our church and we explain to them that the way to become a Christian and what the Christian life is all about is to simply trust in the the gracious love, the free gift of Jesus Christ, taking the punishment for our sin on the cross, only for us to treat one visitor different from another based on how much they can put into the offering plate or the labels of their clothing or what car they drive or whatever it may be or the color of their skin or their religious background. You can visit churches, I'll not name them, but you can visit some famous churches in cities today that have VIP seating areas for celebrity guests. You can visit churches in the world where almost no one has access to the preacher after the service except a hand-picked group of special guests. And again, far more subtly than that, we, we play favorites when we think judgmental thoughts or we choose only certain people to speak to or spend time with in the course of church life. Favoritism in the church, friends, contradicts the message that we preach, the message of God's grace. Jesus did not declare, blessed are the middle class in spirit. He declared, blessed are the poor in spirit. And what he was saying was that regardless of whatever our, our label is in human society, we all come to God as spiritually bankrupt sinners. We must come to God with hands held out, realizing that we have nothing to give to him that merits his love, that we have to plead his grace, the undeserved love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this has always been the way that God has dealt with his people. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, God through Moses says to his people, the Israelites, it was not because you were more in number than any other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, but because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God says, I didn't choose you because you were bigger or stronger or smarter than the other nations. In many ways, Israel was the most feeble of the nations. God says, I've chosen you simply because I love you. And so there's no room for showing a lack of love to others. There's no room for favoritism in God's house because favoritism in the church contradicts the message of the church. And then a third reason there should be no favoritism in the church is because favoritism of the rich ignores reality. Favoritism of the rich ignores reality. As well as contradicting the gospel message, James says that favoring the rich over the poor is just illogical. It, it doesn't actually make practical sense. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 6. He says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name? That's the name of Jesus Christ by which you were called. James says, what he's saying is that generally speaking, 
The rich, the powerful, the influential are not friends of the church or followers of Christ. They're actually blasphemers of Christ. Now, of course, friends, James is not saying that all rich people do this. Nor is he saying that there are no wealthy Christians. Obviously, that's not true. The Bible is full of wealthy Christians. People like Abraham and King David and Solomon and Lydia. Uh, There are wealthy Christians in the church past and present. But what James is saying is that generally speaking, when Christians experience oppression, when they experience inequality, when they experience injustice or mockery, it's at the hands of rich unbelievers. Rich unbelievers. That was true back then. It's still true today. The people terrorizing Christians in Africa or Asia or North Korea, they're the people who have seized the power and wealth in those places for themselves. The people who mock Christianity and the name of Jesus in our mainstream media are wealthy, influential people. And so favoring the rich trying to, in a sense, curry favor with them, ignores the reality that it's usually the rich who oppose the gospel. It also ignores the reality that down through history, yes, there have been some rich people in the church, but there have been relatively few. There have been some, but not a lot. From its very earliest days, the Christian church was actually dismissed. It was It was just laughed off by the upper classes as being for common people. Here's how Celsus, a Greek philosopher in AD 178, here's how he mockingly described the church at that time. He said, Let no cultured person draw near, none wise, none sensible. But if any man is ignorant, if any is a fool, let him come boldly. We see them, these Christians, Wool dressers, cobblers, and fillers, the most uneducated and vulgar persons. Christians, he said, are like worms convening in the mud. That's what rich, influential people, some of them, think of us, friends. To this day, that's what the world thinks of Christians worms convening in the mud. What's the point of trying to fawn over people who have that attitude? The kingdom of God turns the world's way of working upside down. The insiders are outside. The influential have no more influence than anyone else. The rich are forced to admit that they are beggars in the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice poor in spirit. It doesn't mean we have to be Uh, poor financially but we are to realize that before God we have nothing to our name blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of God turns the world upside down now I have to say that this does not mean that we go to the opposite extreme and we we only we ignore the rich and exclude the rich and treat them unfavorably that's not what James is saying What he's saying is, give everybody the same warm welcome in the church of God. Rich or poor, black or white, famous or unknown, everybody should get the same warm welcome when God's people are gathered. 
So favoritism doesn't reflect Christ's glory. It doesn't reflect God's grace. It ignores reality. And then the last reason that there should be no favoritism amongst us is because favoritism is a breach of God's law. Favoritism is a breach of God's law. Quite simply, friends, playing favorites, being judgmental is a sin. And it leaves us open to God's judgment. Look at verse 8. He says, but if you really fulfill the royal law, uh, and notice the way he describes it, the royal law. I think he's hearkening back to the fact that this was the law that Jesus highlighted. Uh, It was the law at the heart of Jesus' teaching. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Boys and girls, that's the verse on your sheet today, James 2 verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for for all of it. See, as human beings, we tend to compartmentalize and categorize sins, don't we? We tend to think that such and such a sin, well, that's not really as bad as another. It's just a a wee thing. It's not doing any harm. But just as one stain on a wedding dress would mean that in the bride's eyes, the whole dress is ruined, or one crack on the windscreen means that the whole windscreen is compromised, Friends, so even one breach of God's law means that we're guilty of breaking God's whole law. To break one small part of it is to rebel against God's will completely. And it's deserving of God's punishment. Look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. In other words, if if we've spent our lives playing favorites, Judging others, eventually we will face judgment ourselves and will be judged guilty of a sin and face the punishment that that sin deserves, which is separation from the love and grace of God forever and being entering into the the presence of his wrath and judgment on sin forever. That's how seriously God takes the sin of favoritism. It will damn us to hell just as easily as murder or adultery or theft or anything else. James mentions murder and adultery in verse 11. It's a big deal because it contradicts the message of the gospel and the character of God. And maybe that is one sin among many that you're here today and you're guilty of and you have not asked for forgiveness for any of of those sins. Judgmentalism theft, lying, greed, taking God's name in vain, whatever it may be. Maybe you're here today or listening in online and you're guilty of all kinds of sins and you haven't sought the grace of God for them. Well, you today need to acknowledge and confess that you are poor in spirit, that you have nothing to your name, that when you stand before God someday, you will be spiritually naked and you will have nothing to hide behind. And you need to ask for his mercy and grace. And for those of us who are believers, we need to take this to heart and realize that the church must not be a place that shows favoritism. That we must be ready to welcome anyone into God's house, God's family, remembering the grace that we ourselves have been shown. 
James says in verse 12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. He's talking there about our forgiveness, the fact that Jesus has set us free from the punishment of our sin. If he has done that, then we are to welcome anyone and everyone else to come and hear about him. So here in James chapter 2, we see that we should be ready to welcome anyone into God's house. But what we saw in Luke chapter 5, and and you can turn there if you wish, Luke chapter 5 and verse 27 is, we see that we should be ready to welcome anyone into our own house. We should be ready to welcome anyone into our own house, or at least into our own lives in some way. And I just want to insert an asterisk here at the beginning of this point. I realize, of course, that we are still living uh, with the restrictions and the ups and downs of the pandemic. And we are all making decisions at the moment about where we go and who we meet and, and when and so forth. I understand that. And nothing I say here now is binding on anyone's conscience above taking care of themselves, taking care of vulnerable loved ones. But there are strong biblical grounds, friends, for Christians to not only welcome outsiders into worship, but into our homes, into our everyday lives in some way at least. I wonder how you would complete this, new te- this sentence from the New Testament. The Son of Man has come. The Son of Man has come. How would you finish? How would, if you don't know the verse, how would you guess that the verse ends? Well, there are actually three different ways that sentence finishes in the New Testament. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Probably no surprise when you hear the words there, you know, essentially saying Jesus came to save sinners. But here's the other way that this sentence finishes in the New Testament. Luke chapter 7, verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. When you study the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Luke, you notice that eating and drinking was a huge part of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, one writer has rightly said, In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, he is at a meal, or he is coming from a meal. He's either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. To give you a few examples, Luke chapter 5, which we read earlier, Jesus eats with so-called tax collectors and sinners at the home of the recently converted Levi, a tax collector himself. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is anointed by a woman with oil, at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus eats in the home of Martha and Mary. Chapter 19, Jesus invites himself to, to dinner with Zacchaeus. Chapter 22 is the account of the Last Supper. And in Luke chapter 24, having risen from the dead, Jesus spends a considerable amount of his 40 days on the earth eating with his disciples. So clearly, friends, the pattern of Jesus during his earthly ministry was to proclaim the kingdom, to preach repentance, and then to sit down and eat, often with the very people to whom he had just been preaching. He welcomed them. He spent time with them over food and drink. 
In fact, one of the criticisms that people made about Jesus, they said he was a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And of course, he wasn't a drunkard, but you don't get the reputation of being a drunkard if you haven't spent a bit of time hanging around with some people who maybe have in their lives been drunkards. Tim Chester, who's written a book called A Meal with Jesus, which I would recommend for you. Uh, Tim Chester sums all of this up by saying that the Son of Man's purpose was to seek and save the lost, but his method, as well as preaching to them, was to eat and drink with them. Sharing a meal with someone is one of the friendliest, most welcoming things we can possibly do. Carolyn Steele, who Chester quotes, she's written another book called Hungry City, How Food Shapes Our Lives. She says, someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or on the way to becoming one. It's, a, it's an act of welcome to share food, whether that's going out for a cup of coffee or whether it's having someone into your home for food. It's a statement that that person is someone that we love, someone that we're interested in. And yet increasingly today, hospitality in our culture is on the wane. Uh, Tim Chester quotes two troubling statistics. He says, There has been a 33% decrease in families eating together over the last three decades. And more than half of those families are watching television as they eat together. So the family meal, he says, is on the decline. As well as that, there's been a 45% decline in entertaining friends. Not even strangers, not even you know, getting to know a colleague or, or a neighbor, but entertaining friends. We're not even doing that as much as we used to do. And what's taking the place of personal invitations to sit down at each other's tables is a rise in what Chester calls commercialized hospitality. That we're more likely to go out and we judge the performance of a professional restaurant or cafe and have them do everything for us rather than providing for and welcoming other people. You might say that we're actually now more likely to go out for dinner by ourselves, take a picture of the food and show it to people on social media than we are to welcome people into our own houses and make food for them. There is a wonderful part, friends, of Christian life and experience to be enjoyed by having someone in to your table. Not just for food, but for the things that tend to come with it. Fellowship, prayer, getting to know each other, encouraging one another. Last week we were thinking about how the church is a community, a family. And of course one of the staples of family life is eating together, or it should be. Where was Jesus when he said the words in Luke chapter 5 verse 31, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Where was he? Was he up in a pulpit? No, he was sitting at someone's dinner table with tax collectors and sinners. God's people shouldn't just welcome strangers to worship. We should, as we have opportunity, welcome them to dinner. Is there space in our lives to welcome people in? And if we can and for legitimate reasons we might not be able to welcome to our homes, but can we welcome them elsewhere? Do we welcome them into our lives in some way? You don't know you don't know the potential that has to not only preach the gospel to them, proclaim it to them verbally, but to show it to them practically. 
Some of you will know and perhaps have read the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield, who had been in a committed same-sex relationship. She was an atheistic, liberal university professor, but she became the wife of an American RP pastor. She became a Christian in no small part because a Christian couple invited her to their table. She says in her book, The most memorable part of our meal was Ken's prayer before the meal. I had never heard anyone pray to God as if God cared, as if God listened, as if God answered. I felt as though I were treading on something real, something sincere, something important. Ken and Floyd did something at that meal that has been lost in too many Christian homes. Ken and Floyd invited the stranger in. And through them doing that, look at the impression that simply giving thanks for food had on that woman. And in the course of time and in the course of that relationship being established, she was saved. Not because she was told that God hates homosexuals, but because a man and his wife welcomed her in and gave thanks for their food. And so might there be someone in your life who knows you but is a stranger to Jesus and his grace whom you can invite to the table not as a project but to show them genuine friendship genuine welcome and yes as you have opportunity to speak to them the good news of Jesus Christ it's interesting that the Bible the Bible never requires church elders to have a university degree three times it says they must be hospitable They must be people who welcome in the stranger. And what our leaders are to do, we should also, of course, do. We should be ready to welcome anyone into God's house, the place of worship. And we should be ready to welcome anyone into our own house. And so as we consider the grace and the welcome that God through Christ has shown to us, friends, poor, needy, outcast sinners though we were, Well, it should leave us with no grounds for favoritism. Instead, it should leave us eager to welcome people to worship and welcome people to our table. And so may God give us the desire and the opportunities to do that. Amen.